anytime you need me to. So if you remember in my history, that's kind of what I started out doing was being able to fill in on short notice for any churches around the state of Ohio. So I'm excited to be here. Uh, when that happens, I, I just go with what God's been teaching me recently. So this message is out of that. It's, I've been doing a study on the kings of Israel. And so that's where this comes from. So we're going to be in the Old Testament a lot uh, this morning. And so uh, I think there's a message here, and then we're going to jump to the New Testament to get kind of like the action for what I'm learning about the, what the, the history of the kings of Israel. So uh, we're going to be in Second Kings, starting off. Second, or I'm sorry, we're going to be in First Kings, chapter 11, uh, starting off. Okay, because I want to set the the stage for what has gone on in Israel, and um, this is right at the towards the end of King Solomon's reign. And uh, something happens to King Solomon where obviously he was the most wise person on earth. That's what he asked God to grant him was that gift. Uh, but something occurred that, that changed everything for Israel at that time. So in 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, we're going to read 1 through 8 here. So it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they uh, with you, for surely they will turn away your heart for their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, and was... And was the heart of David, I'm sorry, in, in the Lord his God, and was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the high mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who had made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. So Solomon does something absolutely horrible here to Israel. And this is the beginning of the end for Israel right here. So his lust and his idolatry towards other things caused Israel to split in two. God punished Israel now because of these actions. Okay? And what was the start of it? It was his, obviously his idolatry first and foremost worshiping other gods. And then it was a sexual sin of having all these women. It says that Solomon loved many foreign wives. And that began to split the kingdom of Israel. And obviously it splits into two, Israel and Judah in the south, Judah and Benjamin technically. Um, It splits the kingdom and then his sons take over when he dies. And then that just begins this endless reign of evil kings basically. And when you do the study of the kings, it's fascinating because you have in, in Jerusalem and Israel... You have kings that, there's about 19 of them, okay, and they're all evil, it says. Not one of them does right. And then in Judah, the southern kingdom, you have uh, 19 kings as well, uh, right around there. And it's uh, 12 of them are evil, 12 of them do evil, and then 8 of them, they, they do, I say, sorry, I said 19 kings because one is a woman, so there's 20 technically total, but there's 8 of them do good, okay? And that's what happens. It begins this reign of good and bad kings, and, and they've just, it just starts this whole process of, of idolatry with Israel. And it begins right here with Solomon. That's where it started. You could even argue it started with King David, with his sexual sin as well, which, uh, you know, I'm not saying that he learned that from his father, but it started here with Solomon in the split of the kingdom. So if you would turn to Second Kings chapter 22... 
And we're going to read this really amazing story of God's um, salvation here for his kingdom here in Judah. Um, if you think back to when I was reading that part about Solomon where it listed off all those wives and, and the nationalities of them, that was so important because I, I believe the writers were trying to show it listed off specifically these, these nations. And why that was important is because in Exodus 34, if you remember my favorite passage in all of Scripture is Exodus 34, 6, where God proclaims his name to Moses and says what his name is, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands he proclaims his name to them. And shortly after that, okay, in Exodus 34.10, it says God commands the people to not worship other gods. It says, I am the only God to worship. And he specifically lists off those nations that Solomon took wives from. And God says, do not do that. They will cause you to sin. So from the beginning, God warns them and says, do not worship these, do not join together with these people. And Solomon goes and breaks that. And he lists the consequences of that. And so here in 2 Kings, something amazing happens. So I mentioned that there was this reign of kings where it was good and bad. Good and bad is basically what happens in Judah specifically. And Judah, they had this king named Manasseh. Okay? And he was the longest reigning king in the history of Israel. It was 55 years he reigned. And he was evil. It says he did what was evil in the sight of God for 55 years. And he built all these temples. He rebuilt them. Because you had this period where Hezekiah reigned. And Hezekiah tore down these temples and and did things like that and got rid of the pagan worship. But then Manasseh rebuilt it all. And so for 55 years they went after these false gods and worshipped them. And he was the longest reigning king, as I stated, 55 years. And he he died. And he he had a son that took over named Ammon. And his son took over and he was also evil. Okay? And he only reigned for two years, though, because he was assassinated. So what happens then is the grandson of Manasseh, his name is Josiah, he takes over. Okay? And why that's important is because Josiah is one of the youngest kings. He's the second youngest king to ever reign. He was eight years old when he began to reign. So that's where we are in 2 Kings 22. So it says, 2 Kings 22, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adadiah and Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So what is amazing to me about this is you have a grandson of a historically evil king. Even the son of an evil king. It says that Ammon was also evil. And he did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And this eight-year-old boy takes over and it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, obviously, I think that's looking back, saying he did what was right. But as he's growing up, you have to wonder who was in his life that was causing him to walk rightly. Okay, what about... I always think about it because it's, he was not making these decisions. We know how eight-year-olds are, right? They are not reigning and ruling over a country. It's people behind him are doing that. And it's fascinating to me that God preserved the nation of, Israel, or the nation of Judah at this time through this eight-year-old boy, and it was because the people behind the scenes were actually wanting to see reform. Now, it, it, something amazing happened. So as he gets older, he asks for the, the they, were, they were desperate need of money. So he has the idea of going to clean out the temple because usually in the temple they had these golden vessels and they, and they want to sell them to make money, right? So he goes and cleans out the temple, but something fantastic happens here. So um, 
we're going to be in verse 8 here, if you skip over there. It says that Hilkiah, the high priest, um, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So something amazing, they find this book of the law. And it says in verse 9, And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Verse 10, Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now, the king's age at this time, it says in verse 3, in the 18th year of King Isaiah, so he's probably 26. Yeah, that's probably his age right now. It says in verse 11, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah the, the priest and uh, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbar the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people, and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So, what is fascinating about this is Israel had forgotten about the law of God. And as you study history, you know that, that with Israel, they are synonymous with the law. Moses, the Torah, everything. They, they are synonymous with that. You cannot separate them. Yet at this point in history, probably for the 57 years they had this evil king in Manasseh and his son, they had completely forgotten about the law of God, and it was lost. It was sitting in the storehouse collecting dust. And so as they were cleaning it out, they find it and they discover it. And they bring it to the king, and the king's response is absolutely beautiful. It is repentance. It is he was completely moved by what the words were saying. But something very interesting it says is that in the king, it says that for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. So even the young king realized that there was a mistake made in Israel. And that mistake was that the fathers had not shared this information with their children. And if you read, I'm going to flip over to Deuteronomy, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy 4, 8 through 10. Let's read that together here. This is the second giving of the law that Moses has. And we're going to be reading 8 through 10, Deuteronomy 4. So it says, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? And here's a warning with that. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. So from the beginning there was a command. Take this word that God has given them and proclaim it to your children. Make sure you raise them in that. And they had completely forgotten it as a nation. Deuteronomy 6 7 says, You shall teach them to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. It's this idea of this complete and utter devotion to the Word of God, so much so that you're constantly sharing it with your children. And Israel had completely abandoned that in this time. 
And it took an eight-year-old boy who became king for that to change. And it's, it's ironic because it is a child you know, starting out. I realize that he finds it when he's 26, but it's a child king who started the Reformation here. And I think that's so beautiful of God to start with a child who had been failed by his parents, by his father, and by his grandfather in particular. Um, so just a, a beautiful thing here. And, and like you, you just see that, that Israel had completely abandoned the word of God, that so much so that they had to find it in storage. Um, so the law, he, it's read to him out loud, and it says that he repents. He tears his clothes, which is a sign, a symbol of repentance. And he says, go inquire of God so that he may not uh, have this wrath against us. And what it says in... Um, we're going to skip ahead to, to chapter 23, verse 6 through 10. That's we're going to be next. But he has this repentance moment and asks God, and God says, I'm still going to bring this wrath against Israel, against Judah, uh, for this sin, but it's not going to be until your time. You're going to die in peace, it says. That's what God promises him uh, for his repentance. And one of the things that, that happened when you, when you read and you study the kings is even the good ones, there's this line in there that's, that's very strange. It says, they do what was right in the sight of God, but then it says, however, they did not tear down the high places. It'll say that in Scripture. And it's almost as if they, they, are, they are believing God, they're worshiping Him, but there's no action behind it. They don't, they don't actually take the next steps for that. And what happens here is when we read 23, 6 through 10, is we're going to see the action that Josiah has here. So in 2 Kings 23, it says, starting in verse 6, and he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook of Kidron. And he burned it at the brook of Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on the ones, which were on ones left of the, at the gate of the city. However, the, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of, of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is, the valley, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. So some of these names sound familiar because that's exactly the places that Solomon built up for his wives. These, these temples to these gods, Milcom and Molech. And what he does here is, is amazing because he starts to actually tear them down, all these places, and defile them. A lot of these were sexual-related. So the sheriff poles, all these things, they required sexual worship. So these were places that were completely depraved. And, but the, the horrifying one is the Milcom and Molech. Okay, what they would do as worship to these gods is they would build this altar. He was a statue that had the head of a bull. It's ironic because if you remember when, when Israel was going astray, when they got the law, they created a golden calf, and that was their god. And this god requires child sacrifice. That's the act of worship that you have to have to worship Molech. And they would, it says, pass their children through fire. That means that they would burn them to death. And that was their act of worship. And this was going on in Israel all the time. These were everywhere, these statues. And his, archaeologically, they found those statues and, and what they would do. And so Solomon started this. Manasseh, uh, his grandfather, Josiah's grandfather, was practicing this for 55 years. 
And then Josiah actually acts, and he tears all of these down and destroys them. And what is absolutely amazing about this is that God then says about Josiah, it says that, that there was no king as great as him. And that's what God says. And I'm, I'm floored by that because there have been some great kings. King David, number one, is who the, the lineage comes from of Christ. But it says that because of his actions, because of what Josiah did, there was no greater king than him. And I am amazed by that, and I think that's a, a lesson for us, just to, to not doubt what God can do with young people in particular and how they can have reform on a nation. But, um, so he tears all these things down. He removes them. And what Israel had not been obeying was that the penalty for this idolatry was death. That was the penalty, and it says that Josiah puts a lot of people to death for that. A lot of the priests, a lot of things that were worshiping these gods, they were put to death through that um, but that was obeying God's command at the time. So, um, Now, what I want to do is make the connection here. Okay? So Josiah, eight, year old, eight years old when he starts. He's a young man, 26. That's still very young in our culture. He, he's, he causes all this reform to happen in a culture that was sexually immoral, that was idolatrous. Okay? So I want to make the connection to our current culture because that's where we are as a culture. All right? that, that's where we are currently. And I think sometimes... And the church in particular, we get in this idea that, that we want to withdraw from the culture and we want to live inside of our little bubbles here because it's safe and we can protect our kids that way. And I get that idea. That's, that's a very healthy thing to do is to, to have your kids and raise them that way. But what I want to do is, is challenge us to see how we can impact the culture that is in this. What does it look like for us to uh, create this type of reformation that Josiah did? So... We're going to, the rest of the time, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4. I think this is our, this is our action verse here. So we have the history of what went on, how the culture had been led astray. Then Josiah's action were to, when he heard the word of God, to act on it, to do things. Um, And in Mark chapter 4, we're going to be in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole parable here. It's the parable of the sower, and then also the translation of it that Jesus gives us. So, this is again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So they got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and, his, and in his teachings he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear it, Satan immediately comes and takes it away and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. 
the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the, rock, on the good soil, the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So, right here is the parable of the sower, very famous. Um, and I believe this is our action. Okay? As believers, as parents in particular, our job, our, um, the, the way that we're called to lead our children is to share the word with them. Share the word. You, if you think back to Josiah, he says that the sins of his father were that they did not share the word with him. And it had to be proclaimed to him after finding it. And here, Jesus, I believe that the challenge for us is to just share the word. But what's encouraging about this, and I use the word encouraging purposefully, is that we don't know who is going to receive it and accept it fully. Okay, I think that's really the point of this parable, is that there's going to be times where you share the word, and it's immediately taken away. It doesn't have any impact. It doesn't affect anyone. There's going to be times where they immediately accept it, but then they fall away. And then there's going to be times when just... The, the cares of the world just completely overtake the word of God, and that is not in our control. Very purposefully, I think that verse 26 is here. Okay, Look at this parable, and he said, shortly after this, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Think about that for a second. So he's comparing the kingdom of God to a farmer going out spreading seed. Sleeps and rises, it grows. He's not in control of it. He does not know how it's doing it. And that represents the, the good soil, the good seed. We don't know how it's going to grow. You don't know when it's going to happen. And I believe that's an encouragement to us that we're in charge of spreading this word. We're not in charge of the growth like that. And I believe there is a challenge for parents to make sure that we are stewarding our kids. Absolutely. I'm just saying we, we are not... We're not in control of them receiving the word of God and growing and producing a hundredfold over. That is not our, we can't control that. That's what I'm saying. So for us, what does this look like in our lives? Okay. As parents, like I said, there's a challenge here. I have two boys. Um, and I'm going to turn it just a little bit because having two boys, the challenge is a little different um, because of the way that our culture is moving. Uh, the sexual sin is so prevalent in this world that as having two boys, I am terrified of, of what they have to encounter at such a young age. Personally, my personal testimony is that I encountered pornography when I was first probably about seven years old. Um, my, my dad had hidden some magazines, and me and my friends were curious and found them, and that was our first exposure. So you see that this begins early, and now with the Internet, it's even earlier. So they're saying that the average exposure age is about five to six now, uh, so we have to, as parents, especially of boys, be extremely careful and, and watchful of what's going on, and especially with sexual sin. Israel's downfall was related to sexual sin. The worship of false gods was related to sexual sin. And here in today's culture, it's sexual sin. That is what's so prevalent. So as believers, there's a challenge to, to be involved, to, well, I'm going to call not lie to your kids, but to share the truth with them of what Scripture can do, how you can fight those temptations that the world gives you. Um, so, 
like I said, we, we are in charge of spreading the word, and, and part of that word is that we need to build relationships with our families in particular. So a lot of times people think that you have to be a missionary to be a super Christian, right? You hear sometimes that there's that pull of, man, I wish I was as good as them at being a believer, you know, or like we, we kind of raise up missionaries in, in our lives. And, and I just don't buy that because I think that we're first called to who God has put in our lives, okay? If you have children, that is your first ministry, okay, first and foremost. Your children are your first ministry, and they are your disciples. They really are. Um, Jesus said to go, therefore, and make disciples, and God gives you disciples that live with you uh, every single day, and that's your first ministry, I believe. And so I think there's a huge burden on us as parents to make sure that we are raising them in the Word of God. Um, and I think Isaiah 55 is an encouragement, right? It says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, but do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that comes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. That verse is an encouragement to me. I memorize it all the time because I know that even though I'm, I'm proclaiming this word, I know that it's not always going to return, but God says it's not going to return empty ever. There's never a time that it is not fruitful and that it will be used for his glory, whether that glory is in repentance or if it's at the end times and it's in destruction, the word will not ever return void. Uh, in that, and as parents, I'm encouraged by that. And like I said, I think there's a huge challenge for us to, to preach that. Um, so again, personal testimony here. I grew up, uh, let's see, I probably started going to church probably when I was about eight, right around there. I, my grandparents moved in with us. And so I went to their church. Um, it, uh, you know, it was a, I would call it a conservative church, very conservative. Um, everyone wore suit and tie all the time. And so we went there, and my grandfather was a deacon there. And he was, you know, he was the only person I had in my life that was a Christian, I would say. Most of my family believes in God, but none of, nobody follows God that way. So he started um, his best way, I think, trying to... Uh, share some scripture with me. And what that was is that he would sit me down in front of the TV and play a video, and it was like some sort of Christian teaching, you know. As a kid, you, you, you're, you're bored by that, to be frank. Um, I think there was good heart in that. I think he was, he was meaning well. Uh, but it just, that was the only involvement I had with him. He was actually very kind of cold, I would say, and um, very mean at times, yelling. Uh, so it was just a weird dichotomy there, getting... You know, being told that this is the way you should live, and then seeing that he wasn't living that way. I'm going to use the term hypocrisy, okay? Um, so throughout life, he was the only person that I knew that was a believer until I got to college. Um, so later on in life, uh, he, my grandmother died, and he took it very rough, okay? My grandmother was a very loving, kind, caring person, and when she died, he went off the deep end. I don't know what happened. He got very uh, alienated from us. He refused to talk to us, those type of things. And I remember his last week that he was alive, my mom had to bail him out of jail because he had been arrested for lewd sexual conduct in a public park with a prostitute. So that was the end of my grandfather. He died shortly after that. So really, to, to me, I'm looking at his life and I go, I don't want to end up like that. Okay? I don't want to be to my boys something where I let sexual sin get the best of me. And I, that I, I want to be a person that my boys can respect when I'm gone. And I hope that as your prayer, 
Uh, my interaction with everybody here has been, you guys are fantastic parents. I want to really encourage you that. I have been nothing but blown away by the, the love and care that you guys have for your kids. And so I'm not saying this as if I've seen it here. That's not it at all. It's just an encouragement saying keep doing that. Keep pouring into your kids. Please do. Um, and for me personally, like I said, that's what terrifies me, is that I don't want to end up that way. So passages when I read about Josiah reforming all these things as a young boy, that's what I want my sons to do. Okay, That's what I want them to, I want to teach them on how to be that in this culture, on how to, to really repent from sexual sin and how to fight against that, because it is this wave that is coming that we all have to fight against. I really hope you realize that. Um, because these, these demons that they worship, these false gods, they require sexual sin and worship. Okay? And that's why the culture keeps getting more sexualized. It's because they worship demons. That, that's just what it, what's happening in our culture. So you have to be ready to fight against that. And I believe Jesus is saying it's with the word of God. God gives us uh, techniques. He gives us uh, strength to fight against those things. And I love the picture. It's all over scripture. You see uh, young Gideon, right, when he becomes a believer and God uses him to rescue Israel. What is the first thing he does? He takes his father's Asherah poles and he destroys them. The Asherah pole, it's hard to explain, was a phallic symbol where the act was a sexual act that you would perform in front of it. So he grew up seeing that, that his father was doing this, and he destroyed it. So as young men, if you see that, young men in the room, if you see, encounter these things, it's okay to destroy those things. I should have destroyed my father's magazines. I should have done that. I didn't know to do that, though. I had no idea. Okay? And as parents, I would encourage you to teach them to do that as well. Okay? I always think about this generation where sometimes they get blamed for a lot of things, right? Oh, the, the millennials are, you know, terrible. But I always look at it, and I, I read Josiah, and he, he's saying that our fathers have failed us. And so the question is, is it possible that their fathers have failed them? You know, these people. Do they know that some of these things are wrong? I always ask that question about people. I see them doing terrible things. You hear about it on the news. Do they know it's wrong? Because their fathers may not have taught them that it's wrong. They may not have said anything. And so as us as believers, we have to be able to, to preach and proclaim that these things are wrong. We have to call them out. This is not good, these things that are going on. You know, the topic of abortion is huge right now in, in this country. Do people know that it's wrong? I see people fighting for it. Do they know why it's wrong? Do they know why, as Christians, we despise, we hate abortion because we think it's murder of children? But do they know that the root of it is actually demonic worship? Molech required children to be sacrificed to them. And then you don't think that they were doing it for birth control. Think again, because that's the easiest way to have birth control, if you think about it. Oh, I just got pregnant. I don't want this child. Let me start worshiping this God that requires me to kill my child. That's what they were using as birth control at that time. So all these things are related here, and we live in this culture that is, is, is just completely devoted to sexual sin and all that. So I, I realize this kind of scatterbrain. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm learning about this as we go. Uh, this is something that I'm studying about the kings of Israel and their downfall in particular and how it's related to, to us and what we can learn from it. Uh, I'm encouraged, like I said, by Mark 4, where Jesus is saying, you are in charge of spreading this word. That is what we are in charge of. That's what we are encouraged by. And, and so for believers, I just challenge you to share the word. Be involved in people's lives. I think relationships are very important in this. Okay, It's very difficult to go to a stranger and tell them what they're doing wrong. They won't accept it. We as people are stubborn. 
We don't like outsiders coming and telling us what to do. Okay? So prior to doing that, you have to have some sort of relationship. Invite people in. Coworkers in particular. This is where it's very um, easy to get into a relationship with coworkers where you just start asking them about their lives, what's going on. And then what will happen is they'll start to open up and you'll start to be able to speak truth into their lives. So as a manager, I had 10 people reporting to me and you just start to get to know them. That was my goal was let me know my people that work for me. So I'd ask them how their lives are going, all these things. And one of them started to open up that um, her, they were struggling with her marriage. Okay? She was thinking about divorce. She asked me, hey, I know that, that you preach sometimes. What does the Bible say about divorce? That, that, people always ask me that at work. Hey, I know you're a preacher. What, what does the Bible say about this? And they always ask me those questions. Well, I told her, I was like, well, first of all, you have to understand that the marriage is a covenant. Okay? And I explained that whole uh, idea. And I say, God, God doesn't want you to be divorced. He doesn't want that. Uh, he wants restoration. He wants healing. He wants you to be whole with your husband. And that was the only time she said that she had ever heard someone say not to get divorced. Everybody was telling her to get divorced. So those things happen. They, they do happen if you put the work in, if you put the time in to build relationships. So that's just an example in my life of where God recently has used just me trying to get to know people. And then I get to speak a hard truth. It's hard to say to someone not to get divorced. But they actually accepted it. They're not getting divorced. It's been, you know, a year since that conversation. Um, praise God they aren't divorced. And I, I gave them ideas on how to improve their marriage. But you don't get to that point unless you have that relationship right away. So um, that's my encouragement to you. Um, I think that, that like I said, as, as I've stated many times, we're, we're in charge. Our responsibility is to share the word. In the morning, share the word with your kids. Ask them how their days are going. Share the word with them. Let them never have an opportunity where they can say, you know what, my dad forgot about the word of God. We don't ever want that in our lives. So um, that's all I have today. It was short, like I said. Kept it at 30 minutes there. So Matt, if you want to come up, pray. So, I was taking notes there. I was 